The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello there. Welcome back to the third journey of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, I am Christopher O'Connor, huddled in a dining room in Fresno, Texas, rock on. And here with me, as always, to uh, uh, go on this merry adventure in rock and roll is Arturo Andrade. Uh, chiming in from Guangzhou, South Korea. What's going on, man? Good, man. Everything's good. Uh, it's cold here. Uh, I, I know cold weather is something that you have no idea about over in southern Texas, but <laughs> it's, it's yeah, not anymore. I mean, <laughs> you, you do know that we, I grew up in in Syracuse. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But you, but yeah. you, you put, I'm sure all the time in Texas, you've lost your uh, your sensibility for cold. Yeah, probably. I mean, look, I mean, I haven't even been back to Syracuse, which again, we went to college and it's near and dear to my heart, but I haven't even been there in like a year and a half. So yeah, my, my, my testicles have probably fallen off uh, at the point. And it's funny because, you know, my fiance, uh, she can be in a room that's like 80 degrees and we'll get goosebumps or, you know, and so she's like the coldest person on the face of the earth. So is she a Texas native? Yes, she is. Oh, so okay. I, don't, I, I can't imagine if I took her up to Syracuse after nine hours, she'd probably want to get the fuck out of there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's just kind of kind of interesting. And so which is a funny sight because uh, Jenny and you might hear me talk about her from time to time. She's four foot nine and 100 pounds. And so I could see this little itty bitty uh, shivering thing up in Syracuse. Like, geez, poor gal. So. Anyway, anyway, I guess that, that that's a segue into uh, into things. Uh, so uh, we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, this is uh, where we will introduce part two of our bovine trilogy. Uh, exactly. And before, we, and before we do that, we'll go into our contemporary album recommendations. Yes. Every, every episode. Uh, content, just in case you guys want to listen to this in like 14 listens, although we want you to love us all at once, you know, kind of kind of like a, a spouse. Uh, we're always going to start our episodes off with these contemporary album recommendations, one from Arturo and one from me. Uh, not just to show off that we're, we're current, but because, damn it, we are current. And, you know, exactly. I mean, rock and roll is, is always going to be there in every shape, size, and form, and the spirit uh, will never die. Um, I, I know for some reason we unconsciously quote Neil Young all the time, uh, wink, wink, hint, hint, hang around for another uh, hour or so. Uh, anyway, uh, let us kick off uh, this here exercise. Arturo. I was, uh, talking, about, I was talking about cold weather, and uh, the name of the album uh, that I'm going to recommend is Antarctica. And <laughs> it's by an L.A. band called Flat Worms. They are Ty Siegel approved. They, re- I, I believe they recorded... The drummer for Flatworms, I believe, used to play with Ty Siegel. And I think they recorded their debut album from 2017 in his studio, but I could be wrong about that. But anyway, this album came out last year, and it's kind of a continuation of what they do. They're just a really 
dirty, scuzzy, fuzzy, punk-style alternative rock band. Kind of a throwback to the 1990s in a way, because what they sound like is a hybrid of the Wipers and Sebado. They have that, you know, that fuzzbox, heavy guitar, rock trio format, and they're just catchy as all hell. They have great songs. Uh, most of their lyrics deal with either environmental degradation or just feeling disaffected in a overly consumerized, overly commercialized world, which puts them right into that whole 1990s thing, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Road to Quantum Crowded West to me. Yeah, but it, they are really good. Uh, they, they, they also, I, I mentioned them uh, last episode as one of the descendants of Pavement. When I, when I made the list of bands that have been influenced by Pavement, they're definitely one of them. Uh, but they rock a little more. Uh, like I said, they, they, they have more of a... They're not a punk rock band, but they are driven by punk rock. They have a punk rock uh, kind of a flavor, but more of a more of a punk rock spirit. Definitely a counterculture type band, and they just have insanely catchy, riffy, heavy songs. And I thoroughly recommend Flatworms. And and, and a testament to uh, Arturo's ability to do free association when listening to music. Uh, he had said mentioned Sebado. Uh, as an influence on this band. And of course, I check them out in the first 10 seconds. I was like, damn, if the boy ain't right. Uh, that is very, very Sebado in terms of uh, uh, attitude and bass and sound and all of that. And again, so uh, long live basements uh, out West in uh, 1991, I suppose, <laughs> here in 2021. Right. Okay. So now my recommendation, and this is a little unorthodox. You figure down here in this rock nerd snob uh, space, uh, we would leave uh, the zeitgeist alone. However, once in a while, the zeitgeist is exactly on point and is exactly uh, what the culture not necessarily needs, but what it, it cultivates and it explodes forth and changes everything we've known in an area. Uh, I actually, and uh, it's interesting to be talking on this podcast, I'm talking about Hamilton, the uh, original uh, cast uh, recording. Obviously, Hamilton uh, had its uh, big run to 2014 through 2016 on Broadway. And the uh, movie, When We Were All Stuck in, Indoors, was on Disney Plus uh, last year. It was the uh, uh, recording of, of the show. Uh, the uh, music is extraordinary. Uh, the lyrics are extraordinary. And, and, and here's my thing about that. Uh, Arturo and I both generally agree that Broadway is the drizzling shits. Uh, this, yeah, this is uh, uh, the sort of the way back machine for white people who still want to live in the 1940s and the 1950s, which is why a lot of plays and musicals from that era keep getting uh, revived. Now, there's only, to me... And I know more about Broadway because I grew up in a Broadway household. My mom was a big fan of the opera and dad loved hair. And so I grew up on Broadway stuff and it, and it was all kind of shitty. But there's two shows really that blew everything up and just you have to just jaw droppingly admire. One of those is West Side Story uh, because you had America's greatest classical composer doing Broadway. And the second is Hamilton. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, is uh, a singular genius uh, because he is an orthodox uh, trained rapper uh, 
basically ace level, uh, heavily influenced by Mob Deep, Big Pun, uh, Notorious B.I.G., all of those folks from the late 90s uh, New York scene. And he also is uh, has written lots of stuff for Disney. Uh, he wrote most of the uh, music for Moana. So you're talking about this really talented kid. He's, you know, he's like 40 years old at this point. But so Hamilton comes out of him. Like, you know, I think it's a famous story at this point. He was on vacation and read Ron Chernow's Hamilton biography, Alexander Hamilton biography. And he caught on to this fact that he was an immigrant uh, from, I believe, Nevis, uh, somewhere in the, the West Indies, and uh, came to America in New York and was big part of the revolution. He looks at this and says, OK, well, that's kind of uh, where we uh, where we are uh, with, uh, you know, blacks and Puerto Ricans in New York since 1980. He made the association with the revolution there. And so it became this idea of you can tell the story of America through this Hamilton thing and the, the story of the founding fathers using hip hop, using rap rhyme, uh, using beats. And you can do it on Broadway and you can do it all in a way where you splice hip hop, Sondheim and uh, Bob Fosse and but not only that, but also uh, Britpop and New Wave and some other stuff. And you put it all together and it sounds terrible, but it fucking works. And uh, it's just an extraordinary uh, show, very transcendent, lots of stuff going on there. Uh, it's really a dialectic about diversity and culture and the things that make us American. And it's just subversive when you have all these uh, uh, black and Hispanic uh, men playing the founding fathers and uh, not only that, but doing these raps that again are just uh, absolutely orthodox and all that. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my reverence here, but it, it just has a, a cultural importance. And I think that um, in the last 50 years, it's one of the great uh, cultural works in America. And uh, uh, surprisingly enough, it fucking rocks. So uh, if you've been having an aversion to that, look at this as a curmudgeonly uh, endorsement. So uh, check out Hamilton. A curmudgeonly endorsement from definitely one of us. Just kidding. I'll, I'll probably check it out at some point myself. Like I yeah. said, like, he, like, he's, mo he's moaning and groaning because when we hear Broadway, like I said, we think we immediately think diarrhea. So yeah, there's, there's, there's very little that I hate more than musicals and opera. I just can't stand opera and I can't stand musicals. Yeah. Like which, I, I, opera would be so much better without the vocals. Yeah, I was going to say, which is co coincidentally because Hamilton uh, work, also works as a rock opera because it's just <laughs> one, it's one big song. I mean, uh, think about it. This, this kid, Miranda, he wrote uh, the lyrics, the music, and the book, which is funny because there is no book because it's like everything is, is, you know, it's got the most words of any uh, musical in history. So anyway, we're checking out. It's uh, it's. It's incredible. So we're moving on, and uh, I'm going to stop jizzing my pants over a Broadway show now. All right. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, this episode, we are continuing what we affectionately call the bovine trilogy. Bovine because the theme is cows. Why is the theme cows? Well, here's what it is. Last episode, uh, it was sacred cows, artists and bands that are critically revered, and or commercially adored. 
and we think they are overrated and don't deserve that praise at all. Last episode, Chris put up his sacred cows that needed to be killed. I put up my sacred cows that needed to be killed. So this episode, it's going to be, again, a cow-themed episode. But this is going to be a bittersweet episode. This is actually kind of sad. This episode is about putting the old cows out to pasture. Basically, these are bands and artists that Chris and I generally absolutely fucking love. These are yep, bands yep, yep. that we either grew up with adoring or at some point in our music listening lives, we, uh, we became huge fans of. And these are bands, artists that we, we adore. Generally speaking, we adore. But they just don't make good music anymore. And they just need to stop and just retire. And there's so many of them. And some of these selections that we've made really, really hurt. <laughs> yeah, really yeah, hurt. they do. <laughs> yeah, and in, in one or two instances, and in, in, uh, at least on my list, it's almost like I'm having an argument with myself. You know, it's like on the one hand, not the other. I mean, yeah. you really don't want to put these cows uh, in, in uh, out the pasture. Uh, but yeah, I think on balance, you have to, some, some of them are, will be obvious and they'll be fun to bag on. Right. Maybe like others, yeah, there's some gray there, but, right. uh, but, but most, of them, most of them are bands and artists that we love. However, there's a good side to this because the next episode the final episode of the trilogy will be old cows still making good milk. These are older bands, older artists that are still against the odds making really good rock and roll. And there are quite a few of them. Uh, most of them are not as well known as the icons and legends that uh, we're going to put out to pasture in today's episode. But uh, they're still worth listening to. It's probably a reason. Actually, <laughs> the fact that they never, these bands that from the next for, for next episode, they never got big is probably why they're still making good music, huh? Yeah, I mean, could yeah, could be they. You know, there's something about having a hundred million dollars in the bank that probably would make me uh, try less hard. Complacency. <laughs> yeah, well, either that, but you know, but but at this point, I mean, look, it's kind of the reality of the the music business these days that who spends money on music for the most part, uh, boomers. You know, yeah. folks, maybe not your mom's age, but it's certainly my mom's age. I mean, the the folks, the baby boomers, the Folks born in the late '40s and early '50s. I mean, they'll still go see them. Enough James Taylor. Nope, and they'll still. I mean, my mother still talks about it. Five years ago, she went and saw the Moody Blues at uh, Turning Stone Casino in upstate New York, and, and she loved absolutely it. loved it. And you know, she, she loved Santa Claus on drums, and oh, <laughs> those guys rocked. And I mean, like, mom, and you know, they they probably have on between the five of them have about eight fake hips. Uh, you know, it just it, yeah, and so I mean, but. Here's, here's why. I mean, the reason that many of these artists haven't gone out to pasture is because they know they can still make a shitload of money off the people that actually still spend money off, off music. The nostalgia and, is very lucrative. Oh, no, no doubt. And, you know, without some of these bands, Live Nation would, you know, who knows? Might Now, granted, Live Nation might go bankrupt post-COVID anyway, but uh, without some of these artists, like, you know, I mean, think about it. The national uh, concert scene would probably like go in the shitter. So, mm, yeah. Where would the curmudgeon rock report be without Anchor? Seriously, 
we wouldn't be anywhere without Anchor. Anchor provides the terrific platform we use for hosting and automatic distribution to numerous popular podcasting communities, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. They also supply us with an RSS feed. Did you find us on Stitcher or Podcast Addict? Thank that RSS feed. Anchor is a lot more than all that, though. You can record your audio and then stack your individual recorded segments for easy editing. You can also store audio files and access sound effects and even voice messages from listeners for added juice. Access our episodes at anchor.fm slash curmudgeonly and put yourself in the game with Anchor today. All right, so let's start putting some old cows out to pasture. We're going to start with my list and then we'll go into Chris's list. All right. And my list, I'm going to give you, give you folks, five bands, artists. They're not all bands. They're, some of them are solo artists who I think their time is past and it's time for them to just retire or go into some other art form because their music just isn't good anymore. <laughs> and cool. I will start with my number five. And I'm doing in reverse order of age. Uh, my <laughs> number one is going to be the oldest band slash artist. And the number five is going to be the youngest of this group, okay? And number five is going to be weird hearing this person's name because he's really not that old, but he 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 is fifty one. He turns fifty one this year, and that is Beck, hmm. Hanson, uh, and this is a guy who is an icon of nineteen nineties alternative rock. One of, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, solo American rock icons. I, I really think highly of Beck. I'm an, I'm an enormous Beck fan. I love everything he did from his early uh, weird anti-low-budget folk records all the way until 2008. Uh, um, everything, he, everything he did really for, for, for a long time was genuinely fantastic and very influential too. People forget how influential Beck was. Uh, his merging of of funk and hip hop and indie rock really set a set the template for what a lot of other bands in the future going from the '90s going into the 2000s. And he he did uh, he did an album with Danger Mouse in 2008 uh, called Modern Guilt, and that's the punctuation uh, of of that great streak he had, starting with Mellow Gold. And all the indie albums that came out that same year that he put out from 94 to 2008, just this brilliant streak of music. And then he kind of went on, on a sabbatical. Part of it was health related because he had a serious back problem uh, that he aggravated uh, while, while he was filming a video. And he took a lot of time off. And then he came back in 2014 with Morning Phase. And this is the beginning of a, of a continual shower of shit that Beck has been indulging in uh, for the past, I would say, seven years. Uh, Morning Phase came out in 2014 and won a Grammy for Album of the Year. And really what that amounted to was a Lifetime Achievement Award because they didn't give the Grammy Odelay in 1996, which really deserved a Grammy for Album of the Year. So they gave it to Beck 18 years later for an album that is basically Sea Change Part 2 without the beautiful melodies and hooks. Pretty I mean, much. If, if you're going to do sad sack music, make it memorable and compelling, not one continuously long, slow, boring drone after another. At least Sea Change had some beautiful lyrics and beautiful melodies. 
and some string arrangements that didn't overwhelm the music. I think like, like, like they do here on Morning Phase. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So Morning Phase was the beginning of his shit streak. Um, like I said, too many overwrought Scott Walker-esque string arrangements that overwhelm the songs. And the reason they're overwhelming the songs is because the songs aren't that good. <laughs> Beck came out of his sabbatical with just nothing in his bag. And what he's bounced back from that in 2017, he came out with Colors. And two years ago, he came out with Hyperspace. And basically, these are just shitty attempts by a middle-aged rock star at doing shitty modern electronic pop. <laughs> There's just this, whatever edge and counterculture element Beck had in his music is completely gone. He's just trying to sound like the national now <laughs> or the, yeah, sorry, the weekend or whatever. I think, I think it's the weekend is the proper comparison and he really sucks at it and he shouldn't do it. Yeah. And, he, and really Beck, just hang it up, man. You're done. Yeah. To be fair, everybody's trying to be the national in the weekend. Uh, hey, you know, so why, why, why shouldn't Beck do it? <laughs> yeah. But Beck is, he's better. He's an icon. He's a legend. He's better than that. He shouldn't have to revert. To, and go down to that level. You know, he's Beck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of feel the same way. Uh, to me, I think that he kind of hit his high mark with Guero. Yeah. Uh, I was I was a big fan of that record. It, 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 he did like this sort of back and forth for a while where he would do the intimate record, followed by the goofy record, followed by the intimate record, followed by the goofy record, all that. But And then it really gets to Guero. Uh, and like you said, uh, Modern Guilt, I was big into for a while, at least for part of it. It was interesting that he was trying to do drum and bass. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely fallen off a cliff. So, yeah. So in, in, enjoy that last uh, fit of graph, uh, grass before we put the, uh, the sledgehammer to the back of your head. Oh, and coincidentally. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Hansen, we had to put you out. Okay. Onward to my number four cow that needs to be put out to pasture. And I think a lot of people out there will agree with me. Everyone's favorite Irish legends, you too. Oh boy. Now, let me just say, you too, from 1983 to 1993, for that decade, they were the world's biggest and best band. I love everything they did in that in that era. They had three albums that are among the greatest of all time in that streak. You know, War, The Joshua Tree, Octone Baby. I'm a huge Zeropa fan. I actually think Rattle and Hum is a good record. Take out all the live stuff and just leave it as a studio album, and there's some really good tracks on there. But they have been embarrassingly bad from 2004 onward. Now, I know Chris will disagree with me because he loves this album, but How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb is a lightweight, pop rock attempt at being Coldplay, who themselves at the time were lightweight U2 imitators with pianos, basically. <laughs> it's essentially what they were. Hey, they, I'll, I'll, I'll give it up. That's a good line. Uh, you're wrong, but that's a good line. They followed that up in 2009 with No Line on the Horizon, which is an embarrassment in lack of inspiration and a crime against songwriting. At this point, Bono and the Edges could not come up with anything interesting anymore or anything good, anything even resembling good, by this point, they're just done. Like, like they're done, done, done spent the way Radiohead is now. But guess what? They're not done. They come back in 2014 with Songs of Innocence. 
And then the sequel in 2017, Songs of Experience. Basically, songs about their youth in Dublin. And lyrically, that's what it is. Musically, it's just a humiliating attempt at trying to remain a relevant pop act. And it's just embarrassing what U2 is now. Like, like, they, they, they cannot accept the fact that they are now where the Rolling Stones were in the 1990s. People only go to see U2 to hear them play their old hits. Hence, yeah, pretty much. Hence the Joshua Tree anniversary tour from 2017, which they extended for two years <laughs> because people yeah. want to hear them play the old stuff. We don't want to hear you play your shitty new songs. Yeah, yeah, I saw on YouTube was it last year a tour that they they have figured out a way to put a new spin on a sort of homecoming. And so, yeah, so they're they're They can still put on a good show. But, yeah, no, I I totally agree with you. I mean, look, uh, 2014 with Songs of Innocence, they did more to switch people off of iPhone and back onto Android than any single entity ever. Yes. I don't, I don't know if you remember that. It, that was a terrible business decision by f- basically having um, – if you have iTunes – uh, or anything, have 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 their album automatically be uploaded into your iTunes, basically forcing their album onto you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which you know, which got which got them like you know a hundred million people access to the record instantly. But uh, yeah, that's it's one of those things. Well, it, it, it wasn't Sergeant Pepper's folks. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and here's the thing: Bono, in an interview with Mojo Magazine, tried to defend it. Saying, hey, listen, yeah, it was a bad idea, but hey, you know, we're giving free music. You know, d- does anybody get upset at Santa Claus for giving free gifts? And my response is, motherfucker, people ask Santa Claus for gifts. No one asked you for your shitty new album. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that okay, <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 is true. I mean, basically, uh, that line makes me think of a uh, old picture of like. You know how like every family has that one picture of their kid when they're like two years old on Santa's lap, absolutely fucking terrified of Santa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what this was. Yeah, people absolutely terrified of sixty-something-year-old Bono. Now, what are they going to do? Are, once this virus is over, are they going to do a thirtieth anniversary Zoo TV anniversary tour? Is he going to bring yeah, out the, yeah. the leather jacket and his sixty-year-old paunchy self? Yeah, the fly is coming out of retirement. Uh, yeah, and again, like you know, we'll we'll keep mentioning the heartbreak because yeah, Octung Baby. Uh, if I personally put together a list of the twenty five greatest albums ever made, Octung would be on that. And so, this, this band there that used to be so innovative. Time, there was a time when you two meant something. Absolutely, U2 meant something at one point. They were a great band. They put out great music. They had a great message. They were the closest thing our generation had to the Beatles. And, oh, no question. And the Beatles were smart enough to break up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, they, yeah, they, they, they knew, and well, they broke up when they were like all in their their late twenties, and so they were really, really, really smart. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's um, and like we said, I mean, he puts the the floor at uh, two thousand. I put it at two thousand four. That's a that's a topic for another day. But I'm actually a fan of uh, how to dismantle an atomic bomb. But yeah, then then they just went went off a cliff, and it just basically they just got sloppy and messy and shitty, and you know they're, they're a bunch of old men, self indulgent, self important, self absorbed, solipsistic. 
Well, but they, they always were those, those things, but they used to be good at it. Yeah. At least they had good songs and good albums to back it up. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So, okay. Uh, now, speaking of self-absorbed, we move on to number three and another old rock icon who needs to hang it up. And this is the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Now, let me preface this. I, I have a really weird relationship with the music of Springs, of uh, Bruce Springsteen. When I was younger, I used to hate his music. I, I did not like him at all, primarily because of his fans. Because I, I don't know how it is in Europe or in other uh, continents and countries, but in America, his fan base is primarily right-wing white trash, <laughs> flag-waving, jingoistic assholes. Those are, those are Springsteen fans in America for the most part. To this day, I still remember seeing him uh, with you, by the way, in Madison Square Garden in 2000 oh, yeah. after Amalo Diallo was killed. And he was uh, doing his stage rap uh, about you know the Amalo Diallo thing. And Springsteen fans started booing him. And not they weren't going Bruce. They were going boo. I was like, yeah. So th these are Springsteen fans. Anyway, that being said, in the mid-2000s, the mid-naughties, I decided to be open-minded, and I gave his discography a chance. I put the boss iconography aside, I put his reputation aside, and I just and put the jingoistic asshole fans aside, and just an open-minded listen to all to his albums. And voila, there's some great music there. It really is. Starting with Born to Run's a great album. Darkness on the Edge of Town is, is a masterpiece. Um, I love Nebraska. That's my favorite Springsteen record. I even like Born in the USA. Born in the USA really is, a, is an album of great songs that's just uh, weighed down by cheesy 80s production values. But really, it's, it's a good album. It's a great album. There's some great stuff on there. And in the early to mid-naughties, he had a great comeback streak, similar to the one Neil Young had in the 1990s that saw him expand his sound. 2002 with The Rising. All those, you know, post 9-11 resonant and compassionate anthems that he wrote. Uh, the atmospheric, calexico-esque desert panorama rock of Devils and Dust from 2005. He had the, the, the raw, gritty garage folk of uh, We Shall Overcome, the Seeger Sessions from 2006. Great, great album. Yeah, which is basically Springsteen and a crack band just covering all these old folk songs from the 1930s and 40s, but kind of rocking it out in, in, in a garage folk kind of way. And then in 2007, he had a great pop record called Magic, where he kind of uh, delves into Brian Wilson and Scott Walker territory, you know, with, a, with, with orchestral pop and just really, just really insanely catchy songs, which proved, proved that Springsteen could write pop songs when he wanted to. However, from 2014 onward, similar to Beck with his album High Hopes, he's been recycling himself ever since. Like every album he's put out for the past for the past six, seven years has been just a stain. You can predict it. It's predictable. You know what his, what his lyrics are going to be. You know what you almost predict the chord progressions even. And when your most notable music con contribution of the past decade, was an overcharged one-man musical where half the time you're talking about how you wrote your old songs, it's time for you to hang it up. Bruce, you're out to pasture. I will say this, though. The uh, the Broadway show, they uh, recorded it, filmed it, and uh, put it out on Netflix. It's a, an amazing show. Uh, so at least there's that. Um, he has a line in there where losing 
he says losing Clarence Clemens was like losing the rain, uh, which is a, a really moving line. But yeah, and working on a dream was probably his last uh, great record. Uh, I agree with you. I think Darkness on the Edge of Town is a masterpiece. Uh, one of the best American records. Uh, well, one of my favorite uh, records by an American artist. And just uh, the whole theme of, you know, trying to find that that dream and to try to, you know, this open road, uh, majestic. That's every Springsteen song. <laughs> Find and get on the open road. That's every song. Yeah. 1975. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But boy, is it good on Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's real good on uh, Darkness He's on the Edge of Town. still writing those songs. <laughs> yeah, I know. My motorcycle. Strap your hands across my engines. We're going to get out of this town. We're going to go on the road. We're going to find America. We're going to find ourselves. And shut the fuck up already. If you haven't found yourself already, just shut up. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And it's it's interesting. Like I, I think the Broadway show gave him a little bit of renaissance. Uh, but yeah, he definitely, he's he's 71 years old. He lives in Rumson, New Jersey. You know, he's... He's got more money than God. He's another one of these guys that will never go away because he knows he can make a shitload of money. But right, uh, but what are you gonna do? But he is one of the greats uh, in America. Sure. Uh, when he dies, I will light a candle for him. No problem. But I, I absolutely will too. And you know, yeah. I'm with you. I think from Born to Run on through Born in the USA, he could do no wrong. But yeah, hey, that 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 ended 36 years ago, 37 years ago. So right. here we are. And uh, the grass is still green out there in the field, dude. Yes, it is. And this leads us to number two. This one's a band, not an individual, that really, really, really needs to stop. And they needed to stop, really, 30 years ago. Okay. (laughs) And this is none other than the Rolling Stones. Do I really need to explain this one? Uh. (laughs) Yeah, give give us the condensed version. Oh, God. I mean, okay. From 1964 to about 1981, they're the world's greatest rock and roll band. I adore the Stones. I'm not one of those who's either a Beatles or a Stones guy. No, I don't believe in that. I love both of them equally. Um, I actually think 1969, Let It Bleed, is better than Abbey Road. I believe Beggar's Banquet was the moment the Stones finally caught up to the Beatles album-wise. Um, and I think they had a great run. I, Exile on Main Street to this day is, I still think, the greatest rock and roll record ever made uh, from 1972. And they made some great ones after that. Um, I love the disco shit they did. <laughs> you know, um, Black with <laughs> Some Girls. I love that stuff. I mean, it's a band boy. No, but yeah. the, the Stones did black music almost as well as any black artist did. They did it well. You know, no, no white. No white uh, British rock group did really touch the vein of African-American music, you know, blues, gospel, uh, folk, uh, um, um, uh, R&B, soul. No one did that. No white rock group did it better than Stones. Okay, Um, but starting in the early 80s, after Tattoo You, they just became a corporate rock act with no inspiration whatsoever. Uh, not a single good album to their name from the from from the mid '80s onward. I mean, the Harlem Shuffle. Anyone? <laughs> you know, uh, corny ass videos, stupid songs, uh, histrionic vocals, 
and they're still making music, and it's still terrible. <laughs> so why? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like I know that they had this song that was on uh, my station when I lived in White Plains, New York, called "Gloom and Doom," which I, I guess Jagger did by himself. Yeah. Uh, that was just uh, pitiful. Uh, I'll let you get back to it, Arturo. But uh, one line I can say about uh, the Stones is. When your greatest claim to relevance in 2021 is that somehow your junkie guitarist is still alive, yep. uh, that, that's probably a good sign that it's just the end of the road and you should go off. And then, and then obviously the second thing is when, you're, uh, when your guitarist uh, marries a chick that's like 50 years younger than him. Was that Ron Wood? Ron Wood. Ron Wood. Okay. Yeah, something like he married like some 25-year-old gal something so anyway when when it gets to that you know it's 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 time to go and the next one and this one is going to piss off a lot of people especially baby boomer music critics and this is the bard himself number one old cow who needs to be put out to pasture robert zimmerman otherwise known as bob dylan this is another one do i have to explain this one well, actually, you might because. Okay. Uh, all right, I will. I will. Only because that, that album he did last year with all that JFK stuff on it uh, was lauded, which I guess you would expect. But well, I'm, I'm going to go into that. But, but even people that I respect were giving laudits to that record, which yeah, which I don't get. But anyway, I'll get to that album very soon. Yeah, and do that. It brings up a point I want to make is that at this point, only music critics aged sixty and up give a shit about Dylan. All right, seriously, if there are any critics or reviewers giving any good reviews to Dylan, it's because they're under pressure from their older bosses who have Dylan's cock firmly entrenched in their mouths. Okay. Oh, you leave Jan Wenner out of this. Please. Let's start with Rough and Rowdy Ways from last year that got Mojo call it their album of the year. I think it's absolutely dog shit terrible. Lyrically, it's the one thing I never thought I would say about Dylan. It's lazy and predictable. When you're listening to a song for the first time and you can predict the rhyme schemes <laughs> that he's going to come up with, you know it's shit, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's a good time. It's, it's, it's cliche. And musically, it's one – it's just – oh, my God. It's just one long, slow folk dirge after another with the occasional mid-tempo blues shuffle. Ugh. Basically, it's it's uninteresting stuff that he's done, uninteresting stuff that has been done before, hundreds of times and many times better by Dylan himself. Okay, years ago, <laughs> years. Yeah, it ago. might have been uninteresting, but at least it was good. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a testament as to why seventy nine year olds shouldn't be making records anymore. You know, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give him this. At least that record was better than Ringo's last record. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and and before that, before um, uh, rough and uh, or rough and shitty ways, he put out <laughs> he put out three albums in a row of old traditional American songbook standards, <laughs> the kind of stuff that Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and Rogers and Hammerstein and Har- and Harold wrote, yeah. the kind yeah. of stuff that Frank's, the kind of stuff that Frank's, what I call Sinatra music. Basically, he did he did three albums worth. One of them was a triple album, so it's really five albums. Shadows in the Night, 2015. Fallen Angels, 2016. Triplicate, the triple album of 2017. All heavily orchestrated, 1940s, 50s, Sinatra-style vomit. 
Okay. Now, I don't like to hear the original versions of these outdated, histrionic, sentimental, sopfest songs. Why in the hell would I want to hear these songs with Dylan's septuagenarian, croaky old frog voice? (laughs) Why would I want to hear that? (laughs) Dylan, oh, this is a good idea, Bob. Why don't you sing all this this syrupy Sinatra music? Yeah, because that's what people want to hear. Give me a fucking break. In this episode, we begrudgingly put some of our beloved old cows out to pasture. However, there are some old cows out there still making good milk. Join us for the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report when Chris and I take inventory of older rock bands slash artists still rocking on, or quasi-rocking on, and producing great music. Follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod, and you can email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Now, we are halfway through our list of these cows that really need to be put out to pasture. Let's hear uh, your cows, Chris. I'm looking forward to this. Sure. And uh, I just want to make a mention that at some point, Scott Walker's uh, estate uh, may come after us uh, with a vengeance. I, I think we might want to just start selling We Hate Scott Walker bumper stickers. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, funnily, yeah, you know, like I said, this is uh, about, you know, we had the rant last week and somehow uh, Scott Walker's made three mentions uh, so far in this episode. So uh, wait, wait one, a minute. One of them was positive. When I talked about yeah. that Bruce Springsteen album, Magic, yeah. that had some kind of Walker Brothers-esque orchestration in a couple of those songs. That's a good thing. I, I, I like those Springsteen songs. Okay, I like, gotta keep- I like it when Bruce does it, not when Scott did it. Okay, got, got, got to keep it balanced to keep the slinder police off our back. So anyway, so now my half of the list. Number and, five. Yeah, and so this is kind of the same. And, you know, I'm not necessarily going to go in, in – uh, the same order or the same uh, uh, conceit that uh, Arturo did. We're not going to go in uh, order of, of age. Uh, we're we're going to kind of mix it up here. And it really is the same exercise. Uh, these are folks that at one point in my life or another have been very meaningful to me that I've admired that have been some of my favorite bands or perhaps my favorite artist of all time. Uh, and now we're here. I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost like a dialectic. It's like, oh man, do I have to put them out there? And in some, and in some cases it's like, okay, so maybe their work is still interesting, but you know, come on, man. Uh, so to start off, uh, I'm going to start with my, uh, greatest, uh, influence on this list. And the one that's really, really the, is the hardest one to do, but he needs to be out there. Neil Young. Old man, uh, look at my life. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he needs to. He needs to look at his life and say, "Okay, it's over." Um, so here's here's the thing. So Neil has had a really interesting last few years. In some ways, you could make the argument that he's in the process of putting himself out the pasture. Uh, I guess he just needs to hurry up. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> now here, here here's the thing with Neil. Uh, he's in his archives phase. And so he's kind of mixing it up between uh, putting out all of the stuff in his archives, which is, which is a good thing, by the way. Yeah. Which is fascinating. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating, but he's mixing it up with these, with these new uh, outlays that are just painful. And so, you know, if he's in the pasture, it's like, he's 
call him a skinny cow because he's he's still out there doing it, but he's he's uh, eating less good grass and you know digging up the old grass. He's not skinny. Uh, Have you seen him lately? He's quite fat now. Well, yeah, Daryl Hannah is spoiling the shit out of him, and, and I guess he's been smoking a shitload of weed too. Yeah, so, he's back smoking pot again. How about that? Yeah, there, there you go. So, uh, a few things to say about Neil. So, back in 1990, uh, he made a comeback by playing his old man towering over the fields of time thing in Ragged Glory. Fantastic. Now that, was, yeah, now that was cute when he was 44. Uh, the song, one of the better songs on the record is The Days That Used To Be. And that still holds up. Uh, and one of the genius parts of that song is it sounds like it could have been from the perspective of a 75-year-old man at the end of his life. Right. And so it's almost, it's got this narrative gift of making 20 years seem like they were 60 years away. And it such was Neil's genius at the time. Well, now he's actually 75. And let's face it, the magic is mostly gone. Uh, back then when he did the whole this looking back thing, it was wistful and nostalgic. Uh, now it's basically just whiny and cranky. And he's convinced that the planet is already dead. Uh, already dead. Uh, so a lot of what I'm pulling from is his last record, Colorado, uh, which, yeah, I mean, it's a crazy horse record and you can't completely shit on a crazy horse record. It'll, you know, crazy horse is going to always going to crazy horse. Uh, but I look at, at things, it's the crankiness and the dopiness and he doesn't really have much to say right now. I mean, yes. look, Dude, Neil Young has pretty much said everything he had, he is going to say like how much more, you know, he's done. And yeah. at, least, at least Bob Dylan knew that and decided to sing old Sinatra songs. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and, and the thing with Neil is he's got a song on this record called Olden Days. And it's basically the same kind of shtick as uh, the days it used to be is. But here's, here's the line where it, he says, I'm living in the olden days. I found my friends along the way. Some are here with me right now. Some have disappeared somehow. Where did all the people go? Why did they fade away from me? Probably because you became corny as shit. Uh, <laughs> and a self-absorbed dickhead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, basically. And so he's got all this stuff. Now, granted, some of the the guy can still play. I mean, the one song I like on it is the 13-minute uh, workout with Crazy Horse. Go figure. Yeah. Although, uh, that the first part of that song is built on this actual lyric, and I'm not making this up. I saw old white guys trying to kill mother nature uh, is, is, is the hook of, of that song. And not only that, but it might be a crazy horse workout, but if you listen to it and you know, Neil Young, like I do, I mean, I was obsessed with Neil Young for years. Uh, there are pieces of when you dance, I can really love uh, stuff from the album broken arrow. Uh, he quotes love and only love. And so even when he's like jamming out, he's, he's stealing from himself. He's recycling. So, himself. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It, it's and then the single from the record is called "Rainbow of Colors," which is this really as, dope as opposed to monochromatic rainbows. Yeah, no shit. But it's uh, but it's it's basically this sort of sing along like kumbaya thing, uh, anti Trump. Hey, look, we're diverse, and you're not, and and all this, and it's just it's it's, it's painful. So, and, like, off the pasture. 
So from there, uh, my second artist, another one that's a little bit painful uh, for me, Metallica. Huh. Now, Metallica. Wow. Okay. Now, I, I will I, agree with this one for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I really didn't get Metallica or didn't appreciate them or didn't understand them until I was in college. And I really yeah, wasn't a metal fan. Longer. It took longer for me. Yeah. And I really wasn't a metal fan. And then I, I, it occurred to me when I was like a junior or senior in college that Ride the Lightning is kind of amazing. And you realize they kind of invented this whole thing with, you know, between uh, Hetfield and uh, Lars Ulrich and Dave Mustaine and Hammett. They, they came up with this idea and of playing this sort of sophisticated prog rock, but way the hell sped up. Right. And, and so they were this admirable band, but anybody who's seen the movie, some kind of monster from. I love by the way, great movie. It's a great movie, but they're nuts and they, they crave validation. Uh, They can't live without validation. If you look at that Uh, and what they've done since. So, uh, Monster, uh, or not Monster, what was the name of that? Uh, the that album was St. Anger. St. Anger. Which, uh, by the way, I am alone on an island in loving that record. I'm the only one I know who likes that album. <laughs> well, that makes, two, that makes two of us. I love that record, too. I but, love St. Anger. It's a great workout music when you're running on your treadmill. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, no shit. And uh, I actually think the, the terrible drum recording works because they're a metal band that's supposed to piss off your parents. And so it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful idea. But it was so poorly received by their core fans, and they took so much shit for that, that the couple of albums they've done since, it was like, oh, boy, we got to get back to reminding everybody uh, why they fell in love with us in the first place. So they did these. They did one album with Rick Rubin. was like, okay. Awful album, 2008. I forgot the name of it, but I know know what year it came out. I remember hearing it and thinking, my God, this is like Metallica trying to parody themselves. Yeah, pretty much. But then in 2016, they actually made a good record where they were parodying themselves, uh, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And it was one of those things where I liked that record, but I was more impressed you know, than digging what they were at. It wasn't sort of original. I was just sort of impressed that they were able to still do that. But it was one of those validation records. It's like, hey, look, we can still do what we invented 35 plus years ago. So, you know, here's a band that's still trying to impress people when they don't need to impress anyone. This is a Hall of Fame band. Yeah, and I know. <laughs> and so they're still portraying themselves like the nutcases in that movie where all those like therapy sessions with Phil Toll and uh, all, all the, of them going. The fact, the fact that the members of Metallica renounce that movie and they regret making it, I think just shines a light on how genuine and honest that film was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How they really were, you know. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Yeah, they're a little bit bananas. And so, and then during the pandemic, they've been putting out these series of really kind of ridiculous where these acoustic things where they are all in their home studios and they mix it together. And it's, it's like the more intimate uh, uh, Metallica with them you know, in, in their studio headphones and, and all of that. And you're looking at this and James uh, Hetfield unplugged. Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And then you look at Kirk Mah- Kirk Hammett, and he's starting to look like an old witch. Uh, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that uh, his greatest sin lately is eating Hansel and Gretel. 
Um, <laughs> I think it's pretty much pretty much there. And so, uh, last thing I saw from them is they were doing a cover, an acoustic cover of Wood in some Alice in Chains tribute virtual concert thing, and it's just like Flood again. Yeah, pretty much. And, and and Hetfield like looks at the camera and says, "Dude, we remember some of the shows that we did with you, and you guys were so cool." And I'm like, "Oh gosh." So again, it's all about validation, and they really need to be put out the pasture. Uh, they have nothing to prove. They're still trying to prove it, and they're putting in these facsimiles of uh, Masters of Puppet Master Master of Puppets Part Four, uh, which you know by then might as well be Child's Play Part Four, uh, in, yeah. in, in which in which Chucky uh, comes out as gay. So <laughs> let us move on. Uh, Number three, they are officially now out in the pasture. Number three, uh, this one pains me too. Smashing Pumpkins. Mm. Uh, I was a big Smashing Pumpkins fan in the early 90s. Uh, Billy Corgan has always been insufferable. Uh, one thing that I was occurred to me while I was preparing for this episode. So there's only two icons from that particular era of American mainstream rock that are still standing. Right, a 90s alt-rock revolution. Yeah, that, that early 90s grunge and, and sort of proto-grunge era. There's only two guys that are left standing, literally. Uh, and that's uh, Billy Corgan and Eddie Vedder. Right. Everybody else is dead. Now... And one of them is still a genuinely good guy, and the other one is Billy Corgan. Yes, that, <laughs> that is true. And I think Billy Corgan's upset that he uh, he wasn't... Uh, second on the suicide list to uh, <laughs> I, I think that upsets him that uh, he got he got usurped. But anyway, uh, I really liked Gish. I really liked Siamese Dream, uh, and Corgan was gifted, and he had this uh, really strong understanding, strong uh, player, strong guitarist, really great studio mind. He. I know he has said that one of his influences was Boston and he caught the over uh, dub bug uh, pretty hard. Oh yeah. oh yeah. I mean, the, the, the guitar sound on a Siamese dream is straight up Boston. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it also has this amazing uh, drumming uh, from Jimmy Chamberlain, but here we go. So they do that indulgent double album in the mid nineties. Uh, they, their, their last good album. Yep. Their last good album. Then they, lost Chamberlain who, you know, had an overdose and had to go away. And they did this, uh, uh, all electronic rock album called the door, which was terrible. Oh, uh, and they then the machines of God in 2000, his prog rock statement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then there's the, um, uh, yeah. Makina or whatever the name of that record was from 2000, Machina, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so, then they don't really do much for 20 years. And what I appreciate from Corgan is at least he's not trying to pretend he's relevant uh, right. anymore. But right. here's, here's a quote when he was uh, promoting last year's album was called CYR, yes. which is not a bad record. Obviously not a good record, but not a, not a terrible record. Right. Uh, it's a little bit of, it's ridiculous, but here's the quote that I read from Corgan. It was comes from the Tennessee and in Nashville. He says, and he's comparing this to Makina, the last time he worked with both James Eha and uh, uh, Chamberlain. Uh, the last one was kind of like, let's just jump in, record some stuff real fast and let it be what it is. So I'm excited about this because we're kind of back in the lane of taking a risk. 
and trying to bring something new to the table as opposed to just aping what we're known for. Fuck that. Just ape what you're known for because at least you'd still be, you'd still be somewhat interesting and, and you wouldn't be like make yourself look like a fool. I mean, look, CYR again, it's this, have you heard this record? Arthur? No, I have not. I, I stopped listening to smashing pumpkins 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And which is a good idea. Uh, it's a very, it's a lilting, basically it's a dance, uh, electro synth record, yeah. uh, with female backup singers. And, uh, I guess he worked pretty hard with Chamberlain on it, which is funny cause it's all drum programming. And it's just this, you know, it's, They've gone from knocking off Boston to knocking off the postal service. Uh, <laughs> not a good transition. Or wait, is are, are they actually knocking off Thomas Dolby? So it's like they're trying to be 1982 hip. And it's just this, it's not even a swing for the fences. It's like, And okay, retro synth pop isn't even in anymore. It's not even the, the big thing anymore. Oh, I know. And so he's just kind of doing his own thing. <clears throat> he's obviously not swinging for any fences, but he's still kind of making himself ridiculous. And, this brings up the pitchfork line of the week, which is going to be a, a feature of this podcast from my end. So, and this is actually a good pitchfork line. This is a pretty good takedown where uh, the writer says, touring member Katie Cole and longtime collaborator, Black Eyed Peas associate Sierra Swan makes the most of a rare Smashing Pumpkin supporting role, adding necessary melodic color and indicating indeed other human beings were involved in the creation of a 72 minute album written and produced entirely by Billy Corgan. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, that pretty much says it all. I mean, so moving on to our fourth cow that I'm putting out there in our pasture, it's getting full. This is the ninth cow out in our bullpen. Uh, Fleetwood Mac. Oh man, this hurts. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this really won't take uh, that much work to get through on them. Uh, look, since 1967, they've been the rock equivalent of a cockroach in the nuclear holocaust anyway. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, it's one of these things where so long as Mick Fleetwood and John McVie are both still alive and they're both functional, uh, there will always be a Fleetwood Mac, uh, for better or worse. And for right now, it's it's much worse. And you think about it. Here we are. Peter Green died last year. Mm-hmm. Danny Kerwin died in 2018. Bob Welch died in 2012. Lindsey Buckingham was fired over some snit. I guess uh, he didn't want to go on a tour and play nothing but greatest hits. And so they fired him. He sued them for breach of contract and then uh, celebrated by having open heart surgery in 2019. So I don't think Buckingham's coming back, but the history of this band has always been that you would cycle in these these really brilliant songwriters, guitarists, uh, frontmen, uh, icons, uh, or iconoclasts, anyway, and they would cycle them through, and they would always stay interesting. Uh, and, it, and so now we're at the point where, I, I like that sequence. Basically, it's Peter Green, Danny Kerwin, Bob Welch, Lindsey Buckingham. Lindsey Buckingham gets fired, and now who do they have? Mike Campbell and Neil Finn. Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> hired. Heartbreakers. It's Mike Campbell. <laughs> yeah, and Neil Finn from Crowded House and uh, Split Ends. Uh, is Stevie Nicks still singing for them? Yeah, Stevie Nicks is still there. Uh, Christine, Christine McVie's not there? Uh, she is. Christine oh, McVie. So they still have uh, Stevie Nicks and uh, Christine McVie. 
apparently uh, I've read an interview where Fleetwood was saying that when they did their last album, that Stevie Nicks basically contributed nothing. Uh, so, I mean, she put herself out to pasture a long time ago, but and yeah. she's, she's in it for the money. Uh, well, she's, so, she's showing up in episodes of American Horror Story. Play, oh, <laughs> playing the yeah. part of a witch. Go figure. Yeah. I want to say go, yeah, go figure. But you know, this is a band that's been almost dying for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they've gotten yeah. to the point. And like I said, the, 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 the tipping point for me is they couldn't even find an interesting iconoclast to, or, or drug meltdown or drunken asshole, like charismatic type. They went with like the two most boring, like side guys they could find. I and know. it's almost like they're the classic rock Justice League now. <laughs> I mean, classic you know, rock Justice League. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what they are. It's like, you know, uh, it's like, it's like the, you know, they might as well be the Wonder Twins. I mean, it's, it's funny. And sadly enough, to a point that I made earlier in the episode, people will still pay money to see these motherfuckers. And yeah. they will never go away. And they'll still always be a clusterfuck personified. Uh, let's face it, the, the, those classic 70s albums are terrific. Those are some yeah, of the yeah, old. No, no, there's a reason that Fleetwood Mac uh, is on this list because I adore both Rumors and Tusk. I also love And They Played On, which is the Peter Green record that has, you know, uh, uh, Rattlesnake Shake and, uh, uh, you know, all, the, all of that uh, uh, tremendous, uh, sure. wacky. Uh, uh, psychedelic blues. I'll always prefer Lindsay Mac. Oh yeah, me, me too. But the Peter Green Mac stuff is pretty special too. I mean, Green Mahalishi and uh, all, all of that stuff. It's it's really really good. But, but, but the best songwriter that band ever had. Oh no question. Best best guitar player, best songwriter, best producer, all of that. He kind of propelled them into the stratosphere for a good reason. But man, uh, Mick Fleetwood, you know, well, ironically enough, they actually had their most successful year last year because of TikTok. Uh, you know, Dreams came back uh, in a major way, which is a little bit irritating because now it means Mick Fleetwood gets to make that much more money <clears throat> and probably st- uh, stick around until he's about 88. Hey, I mean, Stevie but- money too so does christine so does john mcvee <laughs> no absolutely there's money to be had and look mick fleetwood if cocaine couldn't kill that guy and <laughs> i mean and and stevie nicks went from being badly hooked to cocaine to being even more badly hooked on clonopin she was snorting clonopin uh oh, and she survived, she survived those so these people aren't dying anytime soon but my hope is at least they can find somebody interesting to stand in for Buckingham. So anyway, that was probably a little too much uh, on Fleetwood Mac, but this leads us to number five. And and I left the, uh, the most obvious uh, and the the most, you know, basically this is like a, like shooting a fish in a barrel. Uh, The who. Half the Uh, who you mean. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I mean. It's, it's half the who. Uh, And we're getting to the point where the who ought to just change their name to the why. As in, <laughs> I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, it's, I love Pete Townsend. I mean, me too. I mean, the, the, who, my, both my older brothers got me into rock music, you know, when I was growing up, um, my much older brothers, none of them were into the who I got into the who on my own. 
So the Who were my band, you know, like Led Zeppelin, Queen, Rush, that was their band. My band was the Who, you know, and that's why, you know, but I, uh, when I, at a tender young age of 13, 14, when I got sick of hair metal and commercial rock of the 80s, it was yeah. me getting to the Who and Led Zeppelin, but primarily the Who. And they were a huge thing for me growing up, man. Huge. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't really discover The Who. I mean, The Who is one of those bands that I used to be a big fan of, of Pearl Jam. And right. uh, they'll be the subject of uh, an episode uh, down the road here. Uh, we have plans involved uh, with them. But I was, I was an, a monster Pearl Jam fan. Obviously, I was a 16-year-old kid in a, in a college town in 1991. Of course I was. Uh, but they turned me on to The Who. And then uh, Pete Townsend is one of my personal rock heroes. When he dies, I will weep. I mean, just Tommy itself is not the most well-recorded record, but it's extraordinary and one of the greatest feats in the history of rock. So Yeah, I, I, I love Tommy. I, I, think, yeah. I think Tommy gets a bad rap from like these postmodern hipster critics who can all kiss my ass. Tommy's fucking great, dude. Tommy's one of the best albums ever made. Yeah, certainly. I think people think, oh, Sgt. Peppers is overrated. No, it isn't overrated. You just have shitty taste in music, period. Yeah. Well, (laughs) okay. Well, no, Sgt. Peppers isn't overrated. It's just overwrought. Uh, But the who? It's been written about too much. I will say that it's been written about too much. Yes. Whereas Tommy doesn't, even though I know it was a Broadway show and all that, it doesn't get nearly the appreciation it deserves. It's it's maybe the greatest feat of writing uh, by any of these rock gods in, yeah. in history. And so yeah. this is all to say, I mean, I know we're supposed to be putting them out the pasture, but we're really doing that by way of, this is a eulogy. Yeah. Uh, look, a eulogy. yeah. They're, they're both pushing 80. Uh, Townsend's basically deaf. He it's can't a eulogy. Yeah. It's a eulogy. Yes. <laughs> Eulogy. That that was good. Uh, a who a, 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 a eulogy. You know. But so like Townsend basically can't do anything. He's pushing eighty. Uh, he's broken down. You've got uh, Daltrey, who's in amazing shape, but he can't hit the high notes anymore. And look, uh, the and thing, he's become, and he's become a conservative Brexit supporter. So fuck him. Yeah, pretty much. So anybody that uh, uh, supports Brexit or Trump can kiss our collective asses. But so I think Arturo really hit the nail on the head. I know we did this eulogy, but it comes around to this was supposed to be the short one. I mean, my notes, it only says, duh. Uh, <laughs> and that's the only line I have in here. But John Entwistle and Keith Moon, uh, beyond uh, Townsend's writing and performance talents, the thing that made that band so fascinating was John Entwistle and Keith Moon. Where greatest rhythm section ever. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, look, I mean, you, the, uh, the VH1 documentary on who's next. I mean, Townsend basically said, okay, I just, I did a demo of going mobile. I brought it into the studio with just me, you know, and my guitar part, my vocal. And I said, Hey guys, I got this, uh, go, go do your thing. And in one take, <laughs> yeah, going mobile is one take. Of, of the, the, the bass and the drum on that. And it's just like mind blowing. And so one, they lose Moon. They Even Townsend says that they did two records after Moon died that they shouldn't have. Uh, then, then, you know, Entwistle, you know, dies maybe one of the more disgraceful rock deaths in history with, uh, you know, in a pile of cocaine in a Vegas hotel room or something or along the those lines. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah, he. So it was a very undignified death. And uh, one of the, the interesting things about this sort of old man who period is we find out that Zach Starkey is a much better drummer than his father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I'll, go figure. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, we're only in it for the money. Uh, it was a Frank Zappa album, but I'm sure that if you pin Pete Townsend down, he would say that. Exactly. Too. Exactly. So, yeah. Yep. So the who, the who has become the why and they're just a joke. And I, they've done like one album. They tried to do an album and released that and it was pitiful. And it was basically, it was uh, nostalgic, wistful, uh, weepy ballad uh, Townsend, which is the boring one of right. the Townsend personas. So yeah. enough said about them, and that is our cows. The music commentary space within the podcasting community we're discovering is rich with some wonderful entries. Once in a while, we'll give some love to appear. So here goes. Each week during each season, the record refresh performs an exhaustive analysis of one album. Recently, these two fellows dove into Dr. Dre 2001, which may be the first time anyone has revisited that underrated album in 20 years or so. Other episodes have included Carol King's Tapestry, D'Angelo's Voodoo, and Miles Davis's A Kind of Blue. Yep, they go wide and they go deep. For an enjoyable, obsessive ride through rock history, give the record refresh a listen. Well, we're going to end it now with our album recommendations from the vault. These are, and we'll do this every episode, uh, these are albums from the past. Could be the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the noughties even, whatever. Okay, Uh, I give one, Chris gives one. And we'll start with me. And my vault recommendation is a blast from the 1990s past. It's by an unfortunately forgotten band called Morphine and their classic 1993 album, Cure for Pain. Um, when this when this album came out, when this band was around uh, in the 90s, it's, it's really hard to overstate how unique and different this band was. They were a three-piece band from Boston. And I, to this day, I still say they're the greatest band to ever come out of Boston. Fuck you, Aerosmith. Okay, Morphine were a trio, drums, two-string bass, and saxophone, and that's it. And they had this really intoxicating, seductive blend of jazzy blues rock. But at the time, it was such it was such a weird thing, such a weird instrumentation, weird arrangements, so a, a weird sound that they could only be classified as alternative rock, which is really what they were. They were a true rock alternative in their oh. day. But but they're rap, but they had these big fat ass riffs anyway. I mean, you know, yeah, like they, they great big thick saxophone riffs, uh, really thick bass riffs too. I think one of their songs, their, their bass riffs were ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mark Sandman was the lead singer, bass player, and the main songwriter. He was he was the main guy in the band. Um, really distinctive voice, uh, distinctive bass playing, distinctive sound. Everything about Morphine. There is no band then or since that has sounded like morphine you hear that's morphine um and they were around for quite a while they they put out so that was one two three four five 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 albums they had five albums and most of them are brilliant and the, the masterpiece of the bunch is cure for pain 
which is probably their signature album even, uh, came out in 1993 when I was transitioning from high school to college. I didn't hear about them until a couple of more years down the road when I was in college. But they were a big time college band in the 90s. Um, um, just, 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 just such a unique sound. Um, Sandman, unfortunately, had a heart attack on stage in Italy in 1999. Uh, he oh, I died. I covered, I covered that when I w- w- worked at Sonicnet. Yeah, and uh, the band continued. Um, they were like the Morphine Orchestra for a little while, for a few more years after that. And that's it. And unfortunately, they are not remembered as much or as well as they should be remembered because they were just a unique sounding band. That whole thing of jazz blues, jazzy blues or bluesy jazz. I I think it's more jazzy blues rock with no guitars, just two string bass and and a thick sounding rock and roll saxophone and some really good inventive drumming. And they were just a great band. And I, I, anyone wants to hear morphine start with cure for pain and you can go from there. No, I'll agree. Cure for Pain is strong. I also like their last record. Um, which yeah, was- The Night. Yeah, it was very, yeah. that's an expansive record. Lots of violins and cellos. And, you know, oh, yeah. Really it's very Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern melodies, really good stuff. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's actually a pretty record. Uh, you know, Sandman had this kind of like low, kind of gruff voice, but he used it to really great effect. And they, they one, they did some really kind of out there, uh, jaw dropping, uh, uh, rocking stuff for what they did and then they could just be like the most gorgeous they do the most gorgeous thing uh, yeah. as well so yeah i i actually miss morphine too that's that's a good point in nostalgia arturo uh yeah. you turned me on to the, remember the mid 90s so um now for my vault selection and this is purposeful because i just had to put neil young out to pasture uh and, and like i said it's interesting because he remains relevant because of all the stuff that he's bringing out of his vault, but the new stuff just proves he has very little left to say. That was not the case in 1972, 73 era. Right. The peak of his his popularity actually. Yes. And so I'll focus on and recommend uh, Neil's album, Time Fades Away. This is a album that was released in 1973. It's a live album of new songs. Yes. And let, you know, let me go ahead and, and explain this. So what this was, he, he purposely kept this out of print for almost 40 years uh, because he had just broken big uh, with Harvest in 1972 and at around the same time, uh, his guitarist and best friend, Danny Witten of Crazy Horse, uh, died of a drug overdose. While he was doing this tour that's documented by Time Fades Away, uh, his wife at the time was an actress. Uh, he found out that his producer and friend, Jack Nietzsche, gee, I believe that's how it's pronounced, was sleeping with his wife uh, on this tour. So he had all this miserable stuff. And he, Andy's ripped out of his mind. On, on drugs and he's miserable and all of this. You wouldn't really know it from this record. I mean, tonight's the night is more of the famous misery record, right. but th- this one, it's a live record. It's eight songs. And he was touring on the back end of harvest. And of course he comes out with this strange, angry, gnarly live record of, uh, 
it's eight songs, but it alternates between these rambling rockers and these lilting uh, ballads or just beautiful piano and harmonica driven love songs. And it's a fascinating listen. Uh, the title track uh, is basically a uh, we're, we're all on drugs in L.A. kind of song. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and you did the uh, the line about being down on Payne Street uh, you know, at the you know, you know, all the junkies too weak to work <laughs> and, and all this imagery, but it also harkens back. There's a lot of uh, imagery on the album from his upbringing in Canada. And so it's this wistful, I mean, journey through the past is on that. Don't be denied, which is my favorite um, song on the album. Oh, absolutely. And and the album might've died, but that's the one song that it, uh, that never went out of rotation. Right. Uh, and these, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of, um, longing is on that record. Uh, the bridge is on that, which is one of his better love songs. Uh, and last dance is on it, which is this really gnarly, almost nihilistic, uh, bash out, uh, that takes about nine minutes at the end of the record. And so, you know, obviously Neil sounds like he's liquid. I mean, he's obviously like ripped out of his mind, but this is the beginning of his, you know what, you know, fuck, fuck fame and fuck the mainstream. I'm going to dive into my soul. And for four or five years, uh, it was just an extraordinary streak. And on the beach, tonight's the night. Yeah. And uh, yeah, American, and the stuff that came out of Homegrown, I mean, the, he recorded all of, basically all of Russ Never Sleeps was written between 73 and 77. Uh, and songs like White Line, uh, which yeah. showed up on Ragged, Ragged Glory in 1990 were written during that period and was supposed to be on Homegrown. Yeah. And so, so this was the beginning of it. And again, it's, it's, it's a live record. It's raw. It's beautiful. It's, um, I don't know. It's, it's twisty bendy. Uh, it's a really adventuresome listen. And I think if you want to get to the raw nerve of Neil, uh, this is where you should start because the, Three studio records that follow this are astonishing. All yeah, three of them. Yeah, of course. Uh, On the Beach Tonight, Tonight, and Zuma. This is the beginning of it. This is sort of the preamble to that period and sets the tone. And so uh, definitely check it out. And if you're as tired of modern day Neil uh, as I am and you need a reminder, uh, that is where to get it. So that is my recommendation for this week. And so we have come to the end of the... Uh, this installment of uh, the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We are two-thirds of the way through the Bovine Trilogy, uh, which has been very enjoyable so far. And, and the, next, the next episode will be an optimistic one. We're going to be praising bands and artists this time. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, these, these are the cows that are, the old cows that are still producing uh, good milk. Uh, you know, every farm has that one cow that just hangs on. But, but never really stops producing. And so uh, this will be a mixture of, of artists. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're in our mid forties and it, it, it almost scares me that some of these bands are going to be in their like early fifties <laughs> yep. <laughs> that we bring out. But, you know, there are some people pushing eighties, uh, their eighties that are still worth a look at and are still uh, viable. And so, we will cover all of those artists uh, in the next installment. So any final thoughts there, Arturo? 
No, man. I, I think we did a good job with this trilogy. We're, we're almost done with it. And I think we have some really good topics uh, to come up in the next four, five, six, even seven episodes. So oh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're definitely on a roll. And I should mention, uh, the shameless plugs before we sign off, uh, visit us on Twitter at, at curmudgeon dot, or at curmudgeon pod is our mm-hmm. Twitter. Uh, find us or send us an email with any complaints. Uh, I'm sure that there might be some people out there steaming over Arturo's Kate Bush rant from the last episode. So <laughs> reach out to us at curmudgeonrock uh, at gmail.com, spelled like it sounds. Also visit us on Patreon uh, that I always make sure to give a shout out. Uh, this is a, a, a community site for artists to give away extra sweeteners to uh, fans and enthusiasts and uh, get paid doing it. So we do have a $5 tip jar uh, set up uh, at the enthusiast level. So uh, give us a look there. We're also on Medium, uh, where we have the light version of our show notes. The heavy version, downloadable version of the show notes is on Patreon. So that's all the places that you can find us. And we're out there on all the places where you can find all the podcasts. So Google, Apple, Spotify, the world, Stitcher, which is becoming more of a big deal. We're all on on those places. So uh, we are in your service as curmudgeons. We want to build a curmudgeonly relationship uh, uh, with you. Uh, Rather than us calling each other assholes, we would love you to call us assholes. And And if you have any ideas or topics for uh, possible future episodes, let us know. The curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeon rock. Find show notes and more on our medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude. Stay crude. Stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.